At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We eagerly wait with anticipation for the return of Jesus, when He will make everything wrong right. In a way, He's always reigned over all things, but on the other hand, His saving grace has received pushback and rejection from the evil of this world. Join us in our new series, Thy Kingdom Come, His Reign in Our Lives where we'll learn what the reign of Jesus truly means for us believers and how we, as the body of Christ, can continue spreading his name until he returns. In 1941, in the middle of World War II, James Welch was the uh, chief of religious broadcasting for the BBC in Britain. And James Welch uh, wanted to help kind of grow what they were doing in terms of the spread of the truth of Christianity around England. And so he reached out to a professor he knew at the University of Oxford to ask him to consider Uh, giving a series of lectures on the Christian faith. He kind of left it open to that professor to kind of lecture what he wanted to. The professor ended up agreeing, and he began a series of talks essentially defending the truth and the reality of Christianity. He started at a moral foundation but continued to build over a series of what would end up being four series of talks to kind of defend the reality of what it meant, of who Jesus was and what it really Christianity was about. That professor is pretty well known in many Christian circles today. His name was Clive Staples Lewis or C.S. Lewis, if you've ever heard that name. And the series of talks that he would give on the BBC starting in 41 in the next few years would be eventually turned into one of the most popular books in the 20th century, a book entitled Mere Christianity. It's one of the most succinct and I think one of the most brilliant arguments for the truth of Christianity. It it covers a number of different topics from the reality of morality to the essence of Christianity itself. But one of the things Lewis focuses on in that book is his defense of the lordship of Jesus, of what it really means of who Jesus claimed himself to be. One of Lewis's most famous arguments around the kind of divinity and lordship of Jesus is often referred to as his argument of lunatic, liar, or lord. This is actually built out of a specific paragraph that he writes in Mere Christianity when he writes this in reference to Jesus. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. 
You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Ultimately, Lewis, in this argument, is pushing his audience to think through what they actually believe about Jesus. You could tell he doesn't leave them room to sit on the fence. His whole goal is to say, what do you actually believe about him? Why? Because, here's the key, what do you believe about Jesus informs your response to him. And so easy oftentimes in our world to approach Jesus with a sort of indifference that he simply did not intend for us to have. Many people in our world and society have encountered the idea of Jesus. Maybe they've grown up in or around the church, or maybe they've seen or experienced images and stereotypes in our culture. And oftentimes it kind of brings us to a place where we live with a sort of indifference that says, oh yeah, Jesus, he's all right. But we never actually consider what we believe about him. But long before Jesus, I'm sorry, long before Lewis, Jesus was actually the one who was constantly challenging his audiences to consider what they really believed about him. Who was he? And how did that inform their response? Last week, we kicked off our series that we're doing this fall called Thy Kingdom Come, where we're looking through three chapters in Mark's gospel that describe Jesus' ministry and really challenge us to consider the reality of his kingdom. Jesus begins his ministry in Mark chapter 1 by announcing that the kingdom of God is now at hand through who he is and what he has come to do. We talked last week about how the kingdom of God is the the world God promised. It's the one we long for where righteousness and justice and peace rule and reign, where there's flourishing for all. And that Jesus says that the reality of God's kingdom is to come through him. And out of that, he then challenged us to consider how we'll respond to him. Are we just a fan of Jesus or are we a follower? This morning, we're going to continue with that theme in this passage where Jesus, again, continues to challenge us to consider who he really is and what that means for our actual response. Because the truth is, if he genuinely is the promised king who's come to bring the rule and reign of God, then his reign ultimately calls for our ultimate allegiance. While people often today approach Jesus with indifference, that was not the case in his day. In fact, there were lots of opinions about who he was, about what he had come to do, And Jesus, often as he encountered people's opinions about him, would confront them in a way to, again, lead them to a deeper consideration of who he was and the reality that he was bringing. And today, we're going to look at two confrontations that ask us again to consider who Jesus is, but even more so our response to him. Because there's two kind of different things that we're going to see today about how Jesus actually calls us and compels us towards commitment. So look again with me at Mark chapter 3 at verse 20, and you're going to kind of see the beginning of these two stories. 
Jesus, it says he went home and the crowds gathered again so that they could not even eat. You remember we picked up the story of Jesus last time. His ministry and fame had grown so much that people from all over were crowding around him, trying to press close to him to experience him. Jesus calls his disciples to a mountain to kind of set them apart, mark those that would follow him. But here we find him returning and the crowds are still gathered around him so that even when he goes home, they can't eat. They want to engage and experience with him. Verse 21, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And then the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. Now, what Mark's going to do here as he's telling the story of Jesus is he's going to actually begin overlapping two stories. It's a literary technique called sandwiching, where you kind of intro a story, then you stuff another story in the middle, and then you kind of come back to the story at the end. So what you're going to see here are two stories. One of Jesus' engagement with his family, which you see as that introduction, but then there's this other story that gets inserted with Jesus' interaction with these scribes that come from from Jerusalem. Through these two stories, Mark's trying to draw overlaps and parallels to help you kind of see a larger point. And really, through them, Jesus begins to challenge and question how we respond to him and what our commitment is to him. The first way he does that, and the first story I want to unpack, is actually the middle story, which is the story of how Jesus engages these scribes. And as we engage this story, what you're going to see is that Jesus actually compels us towards commitment to him by challenging our religious assumptions. So these scribes come down from Jerusalem, it says in verse 22, and they make a claim about Jesus, that he's possessed by Beelzebul. Likely, these scribes in those days, they're professional experts in Jewish religious law. They taught it and applied it. And this is a delegation from Jerusalem, which means likely the authorities, religious authorities in Jerusalem had sent a group of Jewish scribes and scholars to render a verdict on Jesus and his ministry, to investigate and determine who is he, what is he really about. And their verdict is very clear. They believe that Jesus's ministry has demonic origins. This term Beelzebul that we hear was a name originally given by Jews many centuries before to mock the ancient Canaanite god Baal, who was seen in their day as a demonic ruler. If you remember our study in Elijah, we engaged with the reality of Baal. And so when they come, they don't deny Jesus' supernatural ministry or the authority that he has, but they essentially make a claim. That what Jesus has done is because of evil origins. This is often how people seek to dismiss Jesus. If we can simply attribute what he does to something that's evil or sinister, then it's quick and easy to dismiss. We don't even actually have to consider any deeper reality. I remember uh, if you've ever read the book, God is Not Great by the well-known, late but well-known atheist Christopher Hitchens, He shares at the early part of that book his own kind of dismissal of Jesus and his reality at a young age. And he makes this note. Watch carefully his kind of flow of argument here. He says, if Jesus could heal a blind person he happened to meet, then why not heal blindness? What was so wonderful about his casting out devils so that the devils would enter a herd of pigs instead? That seemed sinister, more like black magic. 
Note the question. The question begins with an issue of justice, but he doesn't actually follow the question any further. He merely looks at Jesus's ministry, attributes it to some sort of sinister or evil origin, and then moves on eventually to dismiss it. Once you label Jesus's work as black magic or comparable to something of the sort that a magician would conjure, then certainly it is easy. You don't have to wrestle with it. You add the label and you move on. And oftentimes when it comes to the claims of Jesus, people move no further than this. They simply look at him in his ministry. They attribute it to something, whatever it is, that can be easily dismissible so they no longer have to consider it further. But Jesus doesn't let this religious group do that. He steps on to actually challenge the simplicity of their assumptions and declaration. He does it by utilizing a number of parables to essentially dig underneath the logic of their claim. Notice what he says. He says, He called to them, verse 23, and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Both the kingdom and house are images probably of royal dynasty in Jesus' day. And his point is clear. If somebody who's in authority or power essentially becomes divided, then at some point that actually undermines their authority and power. It can't stand. It can't continue. And those that would be listening to him, the Jewish audience, wouldn't have to look much further back than their own history to realize this. That in the house of David and what was produced out of the house of David and eventually Solomon, because of the sin and division that existed, ultimately led to the division of the entire kingdom of Israel. And so Jesus makes the point, where a dynasty or authority is divided, it has no power, it cannot stand. Therefore, verse 26, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. And so he makes the point then that if you see these demonic or these demons being cast out, you see darkness being overturned, then doesn't that signify that actually his reign is coming to an end? But it's not coming to an end in the way you think it is because it's illogical that Satan would actually work against himself in the power and authority that he might have in the world. No, no, no. It's not coming through him because he's of Satan, it's coming because Jesus is bringing the kingdom. That's why he brings up this image. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. See the logic Jesus is trying to point out? He's trying to say, you think it's of demonic origins, but that doesn't make any sense. It's actually of kingdom origins of God who's coming through my ministry and binding the strong man of Satan that the kingdom can begin to break in in the here and now through me. Satan's reign is coming to an end, but not because of Satan, but because of what God is doing in Jesus. That's why New Testament scholar Mark Strauss makes the note of this text. Jesus' point in the context of Mark's narrative is clear. Through his healings and exorcisms, the power of the kingdom of God is invading and overwhelming the domain of Satan. The exorcisms that we see, the work that Jesus does in his healing, they're not a testimony to the demonic, but a testimony to his very lordship itself. That he is, in fact, the son of God, the promised Messiah, the Lord of all who has come to establish God's kingdom. 
So Jesus challenges this religious authority in the illogic first of their argument, but even now he takes it a step further by challenging their very faith and response to him. Look what he says next. Truly. So there's a point of emphasis here in Jesus' statement. I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So Jesus makes a strong statement here. He's saying there's all sorts of sins that will be forgiven, even those about me. But what sin will not be forgiven? That which is those that blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. Now this has caused a lot of confusion oftentimes within the church. And even as a pastor, I've had people come to me and say, have I committed the unpardonable sin? Is there something I've done that God would not be able to forgive? And there's a lot of speculation, but let me set your mind a little bit at ease or at least bring you some clarity to what I think Jesus is making the point here. Mark clarifies for us why Jesus makes this statement in verse 30. It's the reason, note it in the text, the reason Jesus makes this statement, verse 34, they were saying he has an unclean spirit. See, what these religious leaders were doing was they were looking at Jesus, the ministry that he was, the claims that he was, and they were essentially saying, that's not of God, that's of the devil. So the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in the context is to attribute the works that Jesus was doing by the Spirit of God to works of an evil spirit, which was ultimately to dismiss his messianic claim. It was to say he is not Lord. He is not of God. He is not of the kingdom. He is of the devil. And when you see that in context, right, let me just give you a clear definition of what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to reject God's Messiah. That's what it is. This is the only unforgivable sin, is to reject God's Messiah. Maybe you can think of it like this. Maybe an illustration will help you understand, I think, what Jesus is going for here. Imagine that your company that you work for hires a new manager to oversee your division. And when this new manager shows up on the job, he begins to assign new initiative and tasks to you and your fellow employees that he wants to see happen within the company. But almost immediately after he comes, you begin to hear some murmurings from some of your fellow employees who begin to say, who does she think that she is to run the company like this? I think she has ulterior motives. She doesn't really care about us, just her career. If they were really a real manager, they would just stick to what we've been doing and not try to shake things up. I bet they did some shady stuff to get this position. And this begins to influence you and the division that you begin to work for. It begins to upset the employees who begin to not follow the call of this new manager. Eventually, the manager gets wind of these and begins to call a meeting. At the meeting, your manager clarifies for everyone that they've heard the rumors, but they don't make sense. I'm here for the good of the company, they claim. But if you can't trust that, if you can't trust me enough to follow what I'm asking of you, then you, can, you can't work here anymore. 
Like I can forgive any of your mistakes or mishaps or the things that you do in your job that you're maybe not quite as good at as you should be yet. But if you're going to undermine the very essence of the company by claiming that my leadership here has ulterior motives and you're going to undermine my authority, then you need to find a new job. I think most of us would agree with that, right? Most of us would look and say, that's, yeah, that, that's kind of what is necessary. And in some ways, I think that's what Jesus is trying to say here. If the claims that you're going to make about who I am and my kingdom are that I'm not here actually on God's behalf. I'm not here for the work of salvation. I'm not here to establish God's kingdom. But I have ulterior motives or demonic or evil motives. Then at the end of the day, you don't trust me. And if you don't trust me, you're not with me and you won't follow me. And if that's the case, then the forgiveness that I've come to bring my people and those who trust in me, it won't be yours. So what Jesus is simply trying to say is, who do you believe that I am? Because that informs your response to me. If you think I'm demonic, you'll never follow me. And the good news, though, is that I think in this, what we what we find in Jesus' words here as he kind of challenges our religious assumptions is we find both a challenge and a comfort. The challenge that we find here is Jesus is saying, are you, are you really going to follow me? Are you submitted to me as Lord? Listen, friends, religion can often be used as a way to dismiss the lordship of Jesus, not accept him. Don't think just because you're in church that that automatically means our hearts have actually been submitted to the lordship of Jesus. These leaders use their religious system to reject Jesus, not follow him. There's a way to practice Christianity without actually submitting to Christ. And I'll put Christianity in quotes there. I know scholars who know more about the New Testament than you and I will ever learn who have no interest in actually bowing their knee before the Lord Jesus. I know pastors who teach with incredible eloquence, who can preach way better than I can, who have no desire to actually submit their own lives in obedience to Christ. I know Christians who show up in church but the lordship of Jesus doesn't affect any other area of their life or any other day of the week. I know Christians who claim Christ, but then seek to redefine his teaching or statements to just fit more of their own perception in the world. You can practice religion without submitting to Jesus as Lord. And Jesus' statement here should be a wake-up call for us to ask, have we given our true allegiance to him? Have we submitted to him on his terms, or are we still coming to him on our terms? It's a challenge to ask if we really will surrender and follow. And don't just say yes because you're in church. Consider it. Consider it for your own heart. Have you surrendered to Jesus? That's the challenge. But out of his words also comes a comfort. If the only unforgivable sin is to reject his Messiahship, then the comfort is what Jesus says. All the rest of your sins are forgiven. What comfort is that? 
That if you've confessed Jesus as Lord, if you've believed in him, then all of your sins, God does not consider against you. Not just some of your sins, not just a few of them, all of them, every single one, every failure, every mistake, every time you've chosen disobedience, every time you've not surrendered to the lordship of Jesus, if you've put your faith in him, God has removed them from you as far as the east is from the west. So even Jesus' challenge is a comfort for those who have put their faith in Jesus. Yes, amen. And the truth is you can have that comfort today simply by trusting in Jesus. You don't have to do more than that. This isn't an invitation to work. It's simply an invitation to surrender, to faith in Jesus. And he compels them towards, out of their religious falsehood, into truly following him. But... The challenge doesn't just stop there. Jesus continues to challenge our commitment to him. Because as this story ends, we immediately pick back up the ending of our other story. The one about his mother and his brothers. So catch the sandwich, right? Remember where we were in verse 21. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. So while the scribes had a claim about Jesus that, He was demonic. His family has a different claim, that he is crazy. But out of this claim, Jesus begins to challenge them to ask the question, are you committed to me? And he does that by by reorienting their family loyalty. Look at 31. His mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. Now, this is actually a key theme that you're going to see throughout the book of Mark, that Mark introduces here, and you're going to see it in chapters that uh, that follow, which is this, that in Jesus' kingdom, those we assume should be on the inside are actually on the outside, and those that are often on the outside are on the inside. So in their culture, you would expect the family to be on the inside. They were a priority, and yet here we find them on the outside, and Jesus is surrounded by the calls, or by the crowds. And the reason, though, that we see them on the outside is that this family, his family, have no interest at this point in actually following Jesus. They don't show up to him to learn from him. They don't show up to submit to him. No, they show up, and and what do they do? They call for him. The crowds note, verse 23, 32, they said to him, your mother and brother are outside seeking you. They don't come in submission to Jesus. They come to get him out of there. Why? Because they think he's crazy. What you believe about Jesus informs your response to him. And if they believe he's crazy, then they're not going to submit to him. They want him to submit to them. But look how Jesus responds, verse 33. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? Now that is a loaded question. And it's an especially loaded question in the Middle Eastern context. Because in the Middle East, in Jesus' day, the family is the center of your life. In our day, we, we live in a hyper-individualistic culture, right? So we define our lives. We define our purposes. This is how we orient. When you live in Jesus' culture, and if you go to the Middle East today, that is not their worldview and perspective. Your family defines your identity. Your family defines your purpose. 
You are beholden to them first and the community at large. So to ask who are my mother and my brothers, or essentially to ask who is my family, is to ask the question, who is my life defined by? What defines me? Jesus' family is saying, we define you. You follow us. And Jesus is saying, hold on. That's not the case. And he answers them, verse 34, looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my, bro- my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, note the addition, and sister. So he goes inclusive here. And mother. So the answer Jesus gives to the question, who or what is my life defined by, is simply those that our lives are defined by God and doing his will. That's what our lives are be defined by. And what is God's will? Well, we already saw that earlier last week. It's to be with Jesus and to be sent by Jesus on mission, that he is the king and we're to learn from him. And so he compels commitment here towards himself by essentially looking not only at his mothers and brothers, but the audience itself and asking the question, what is your life defined by? And then answering it and saying, your life is defined by God's will, which is following me. That's what your life is to be defined by. Because following Jesus actually reprioritizes our lives around him. That even means shifting our relational loyalties our understanding of our who we are, and our purpose. When I was growing up, my dad would use the phrase from time to time and remind us that blood is thicker than water. How many of you have heard that phrase before, right? Blood is thicker than water. It was always used as this reminder, a little bit in our family, of like your family is always a priority. You take care of each other. No matter the distance, you always kind of do that. It's interesting, if you actually study that phrase, it comes out of German literature. And it was used as a phrase, essentially, that the ideas that the waters of baptism, that's what the phrase originally means, um, couldn't usurp or erase the bond that is family. And so now it's often used as kind of a phrase to mention our priority of family. But what's interesting is that that phrase is actually the complete opposite of what Jesus says here. For Jesus... Water, which baptism is the symbol of identification with him, is actually thicker than blood. That the family that we are meant to be marked by are those that are a part of God's kingdom and do his will. This is the bond of family. This is the community we're defined by. These are the relationships that we are called to prioritize. So for Jesus, to follow him is actually to reprioritize the very essence of who we are and the relationships that we carry around him. Your church family is actually meant to have a greater bond in Christ than even your biological family. Because it's marked by those who do the will of God. So to hear Jesus' call is for us to ask the question, who or what is your life defined by? What's your highest relational commitment? What informs the priorities of how you live? To follow Jesus is to reorient those loyalties around him. It's to make God's will the center of why and how we live. So what does that look like? Well, in one sense, it looks like exactly what we heard last week. 
to be with him and to live for him. That that's the essence of our lives, to be with Jesus and to live for him in the everyday stuff of life, right? In, in all the things that God leads us into, in our, in our job, in our home, in our recreation. To reorient our lives is to reorient the very things of the world that God has made around him. But it also means at times reorienting our relational realities. Sometimes that means physical reorientation. Almost every overseas missionary knows what it means to make the sacrifice of not being with their physical family in order to prioritize the kingdom of God and the mission of God. And some of us at times are called to physical reorientation, to being willing to follow Jesus and his way and his mission, not holding on to the bonds of family that then hinder what he might be calling us to in our hearts and our lives, even physically. Sometimes that means spiritual reorientation. Maybe God hasn't called us to physically leave our families, but maybe there's reality within our families that promote or celebrate things that are contrary to the will of God. And we have to be willing to prioritize the kingdom over even those that we're closest to within our physical family. Oftentimes we can be challenged to ask the question whether we will acquiesce to the culture of our family or whether we will live for the values of the kingdom. Who's your, who's your mother and your brothers? Because for Jesus, it's those that center on him who do the will of God. And so through both these stories, Jesus ultimately seeks to do the same thing, to compel people towards commitment to himself and his kingdom. The reality of Jesus' reign does not allow us to stand in middle ground. It doesn't allow us to sit on the fence. We first must decide, who is he? What do we actually believe about him? And he didn't leave. You can see it in this passage. You can continue to see it as you read through the gospel of Mark. He didn't leave us in a place where indifference was an option. If you're going to reject him, reject him. Say he's crazy. Say he's demonic. But like Lewis says, don't just say he was a good guy that taught some nice moral principles. It's not what he claims. But if he is truly Lord, if he is truly the promised one, the one to bring the kingdom that God promised, then his reign calls for our ultimate allegiance. It calls for our ultimate allegiance. It calls for the full surrender of our lives under his reign and to make the kingdom the priority for who we are and how we live. This ultimately was the place Lewis himself would ultimately come. Although he was an atheist for many years, after several encounters with the Lord, he came to truly believe that Jesus was the Son of God. In fact, he would write elsewhere in Mere Christianity, we are faced then with a frightening alternative. This man we are talking about either was and is just what he said or else a lunatic or something worse. 
Now it seems to me obvious that however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. God has landed on this enemy-occupied world in human form. And so hear the testimony of Lewis. Hear the testimony of those in this room. Hear the testimony of Jesus himself. He is Lord, and because he is Lord, he is worthy of our total allegiance. A giving of your life for him. There's no other option, right? I can't drive that point home enough. If I sound like a broken record, it's because I don't want to leave you in a place of indifference. I don't want you to continue to waffle through life where you show up at church, where you go through religious assumptions, but at the end of the day, you receive rejection because you've never in your life made the point to surrender to Christ. Because his kingdom is the greatest thing there is. And his lordship is the very thing you were designed to live for. And he invites you today to surrender your life to him. And I want to give you an opportunity to do that if you've never done that this morning. So I'm just going to invite you for a moment to bow your head and close your eyes. Again, I say it often. This isn't to be weird. This is just to give you a place of spiritual focus for a moment. And I want for you to just wrestle with the question first, just for a moment, of who you genuinely believe Jesus to be. Who do you believe him to be? And then out of that, I want want you to make the commitment in your own heart to respond appropriately. you don't know who he is, if you're wrestling with that question this morning, maybe maybe the commitment you make is to the journey of exploration, to, to not letting the stereotypes of culture or the reality of your upbringing to inform who you believe Jesus to be, but you actually explore that for yourself. Or maybe God's calling you right now to recognize that he is Lord and he is God. You don't have to pray some special prayer. All you have to do is make a decision in your heart to trust that he is Lord, that he has risen from the dead, that he died for your sins, and then commit to following him. So if that's the case, I invite you to do that right now in your seat, right where you're at, to just commit in your own heart, your own words, to say, Jesus, I believe you're Lord, and I commit my life to you and your kingdom. For the rest of us, Maybe even use this moment just for a second to affirm your own commitment to him. Sometimes the pressure of life, the distraction of things, the struggle of sin can cause us to lose that focus. I invite you, if you've had made that commitment, maybe even today to hear afresh the call and invitation of Jesus. And as you do that, let me just take a moment and pray for us in this space. 
Lord Jesus. I confess this morning, you are Lord. Truly God and truly man, the one who has come to save, the promised Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords, that's who you are. Because that's who you are, God, we hear the call to give our lives and surrender to you. And I pray for for everyone in this room, all of us, wrestle with that call. And I even know right now we have an enemy who's seeking to bring distraction to lessen the call of your commitment to you. I pray for a moment that you would just remove his voice from this place. And instead that the voice of your spirit would speak to each one of our hearts, inviting us into that place of following you. Because that's right where your kingdom is found. So even help us in this moment as we prepare to respond. And sing this song, just centering ourselves on you. To use this as a way, even for all of us as a community, to affirm our commitment to follow Christ. To give our allegiance to you. So even move now, Holy Spirit, we claim, just continue to do your work, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.